recorded live in Farmer Hall in the high center amidst the community of educators here at Messiah College. This is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. Now, your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to this special episode, a bonus episode of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. Most of our listeners thought that season four was over, Drew, but we are here, and we are in front of a live audience uh, today. Let's hear it, yeah. Yeah, I have to say, this feels a little bit different. Uh, Usually we're in the cozy confines of a recording studio here around the corner, but uh, I think we can make this work. Uh, But I do hear grades were due, uh, what, an hour ago? Hour or so ago. (laughs) And we had commencement rained out again, so maybe... uh, This is a live audience, but maybe not a lively audience. That's that's definitely true. um, Again, let's hear it again from our live studio (laughs) audience, right? Yeah! You know, is this, is this the part where I say, I can't hear you, right, louder, right? Um, I don't, you know, I, I'm surprised at how, how, how lively everybody is. Um, I should make sure everybody understands, uh, this is, we are recording a live episode right now. Uh, we're here to, this will be edited and it will be distributed out on all of our pod catchers, which is a word I learned from you, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, and so forth. So you are participating as a, uh, as a live audience in a, in a live recorded Um, episode. So we are here for Educators Day, a tradition in which our faculty and other educators mark the end of the previous year and turn our attention to developing ourselves for the year ahead. So you're saying this is required? Absolutely, this is required. (laughs) The provost is sitting over here to my right. Um, And you know something, that's a good transition for today's topic, Drew. What is required of us as academics to flourish in a digital world? Drew, would you say that you flourish in the digital world? Well, I like to call it the world. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Good point. This is really a generational question, isn't it? Um, in my case, my graduate school, I was just talking with Ashley Schaefer, my graduate school in earliest years as a faculty member predated social media, digital scholarship, etc. So as a grad student yourself who's pursuing a PhD in early American history at Lehigh, As well as a husband and a father, uh, do you experience challenges because our world is so pervasively technological? Definitely. Actually, I think somewhere back there is our our intern. Um, Those of you who listen to the podcast, my two-year-old daughter is our official intern, Nilsa. I think she's probably somewhere back there. Hey, Nilsa. (laughs) Back there on a... She's waving. Is she waving? (laughs) Oh, yay. She's probably back there on a screen watching Netflix or using the old uh, iPod uh, or iPad... Uh, babysitter. Um, you know, and we, we tried really hard as parents to kind of limit screen time. You know, they'd say you shouldn't, kids shouldn't be in front of a screen until a certain age. But I mean, it, it's so hard because they're everywhere and, and, and I'm using screens all the time. And so she wants to see, I mean, she knows how to get through my phones or my uh, photos on my phone much more easily than I am. But on the other hand, I think it presents us with a lot of wonderful opportunities. In fact, one of my, um, one of my advisors at Lehigh, he's a He's a, a recent hire. He's a young guy. He just finished his PhD uh, just you know five or six years ago, and already he comments all the time, looking at my own scholarship, about how much easier it is for me to a- access archives and 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 do my work just because all of these tools are available to me uh, digitally. Yeah, yeah. Someone who was actually reading some some um, 18th century letters last night online, <laughs> I could definitely 
kind of relate to that. You know, by having a blog, uh, I've been accountable to get my ideas out there in a very short period of time. Um, at the same time, because I follow a lot of historians on their blogs and on Twitter, um, I also get kind of cutting-edge scholarship, cutting-edge stuff uh, that's being put out there. Do you face challenges in your own work? Well, you know, I think my dreams are now take place in 280 characters, right? I mean, they're limited to 280 characters. I, I, I did notice you were quick to use the increased character limit uh, when they rolled that out on Twitter. About, <laughs> uh, you can tell you're a historian when, oh, I got I to gotta use up all the space. <laughs> I, got 100, I got 140 more. Uh, seriously, though, Twitter has become a very effective way of communicating history-related ideas. So much so that we uh, actually titled episode 34 of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, Twitter Stories, and we featured Princeton University historian Kevin Cruz. Uh, this is the king of the Twitter Storians. Uh, he has over 50,000 followers. Um, among many other things, Twitter, Twitter historians have brought accurate history uh, to the internet. Yeah, actually, our audience might find uh, that podcast episode of interest, and I assume many of us here are, are not yet listeners. Um, so if you actually want to just search for The Way of Improvement Leads Home on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcatcher of choice, you can even give the podcast a five-star uh, review while you're there. For those <laughs> in the audience new to the podcasting medium, basically 50% of my job is begging people for five-star reviews. That's right. That's right. right. So the Twitter story and episode really focused on the discipline of history. In what ways do you think academics in a digital world influences other disciplines? Yeah, we've been talking a lot about history here so far, right? And that, that's a great question. And that is the focus of our panel today. Uh, we have three guests this today. We've never had, have we had three guests before? We've had two, three We've had two, but I think it's our first three. Yeah, one is a fellow historian, uh, another is in English, and a third is from communication. And we will be exploring how our digital world influences their work as academics. So, Drew, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, our panel for today? Gladly. And let's welcome to the Palmer stage our three panelists this morning. As I introduce each one, let's give them a roaring applause because we're trying to get some compelling audio here and we want to get that <laughs> crowd noise in the, uh, in the recording. So let's first welcome David Pettigrew, Associate Professor of History at Messiah College. David. <laughs> welcome, David. Welcome. Dr. Pettigrew is a scholar of the ancient Mediterranean world who uses material evidence and digital tools to write and produce regional histories. As an archaeologist and historian, David has participated in and directed archaeological research programs in the United States, Greece, and Cyprus, and authored articles and books on Greek and Roman cities and landscapes. As a digital historian, David manages blogs, websites, and interactive historical maps and coordinates digital humanities activities here at Messiah. He is currently involved in research on the archaeology of early Christianity and the excavations of ancient coastal sites in Cyprus and developing the Digital Harrisburg Initiative. He blogs at CorinthianMatters.com and tweets at CorinthianMatters. Our next guest is Dr. Jean Corey, Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of English as well as the Director. <laughs> as well as the director for the Center for Public Humanities here at Messiah College. Her research centers on justice and pedagogy, gender and literacy. There are a few things Dr. Jean Corey loves more than good conversation, which is why she loves to teach English. 
Her love for generative conversation also equips her well as director of the Center for Public Humanities, a center devoted to kindling the conversation regarding the capacity of the humanities to transform individual lives through the discovery of meaning and to transform society through the discovery of shared civic ideals. To realize its goals, the center sponsors innovative forms of public humanities outreach, including poetry in place, the Hoverter course in the humanities, and the humanities fellows whose blog can be followed at humanitiesinplace at wordpress.com. Our third and final guest is Nathan Skolstad, who serves as assistant professor of film and digital media here at the Center for Podcasting. We stole stole Nathan from the Great White North. Nathan is a Canadian film and video artist who explores stories of redemption, ways of seeing, and what it means to be human. He specializes in documentary production. His films have screened at festivals and art galleries internationally. His teaching includes courses in screenwriting, film editing, multimedia storytelling, and his students' film projects have screened at national and international festivals, including the film Beyond the Margins, which has been used as promotional material by World Vision and UNICEF. His MFA thesis, Imago Dei, was nominated for the York University Thesis Prize. His artistry in film and reel can be followed on his website at www.nathanskolstad.com. So before we get to the interview, you recently sat down for an interview with Messiah's very own Ashley Schaefer. So, John, you completed graduate school in 1999, which, if you don't mind me saying, was largely a pre-digital age. I'm an old man. (laughs) If you were to speak to your grad school self, what would he be most surprised about as you think about your scholarship and its various delivery modes today? Right. Well, I obviously couldn't imagine blogging or social media um, when I was a graduate student finishing in 99. I actually got my first email account in 1994, my first year of graduate school. So I started with kind of email and and went from there. Um, So obviously I couldn't imagine then what I'm doing now online. Um, But on the other hand, there's some continuity. I mean, I think I've always been a kind of traditional uh, scholar too. I mean, I've written books, actual books that you can hold (laughs) right in your hand. Um, I've presented traditional papers at conferences, published in traditional journals. Uh, I've never taught an online course, and maybe I shouldn't say this with the provost sitting over there, but I hope I never get a chance to. Um, so, so there's been some, you know, there's been some continuity between being a, a traditional scholar trained in the 90s, right, and, uh, and um, you know, what, I'm, what, I've, what I continue to do as a historian. But um, social media, I think, provided an opportunity for me to uh, expand my ideas, expand my writing. I think there's really a place, um, especially for faculty at Messiah College, a small, relatively small, regional Christian college, uh, to um, have your ideas put out there and actually, in some cases, even taken seriously uh, in a way that may not necessarily always happen if you don't have the kind of uh, Ivy League post or, you know, something like that. So, uh, so yeah, I obviously couldn't imagine doing what I do now on social media, blogging, and so forth. But um, there's also, you know, I, I don't think I've changed too much in terms of this kind of scholarship I also value. Sure, sure. And in, in terms of social media, you've been active on Twitter since 2012. 
Now, do you tweet as a historian, a social commentator, an educator? In other words, how do you think about your identity on Twitter? Yeah, that's a great question. Twitter's like the wild, wild west. <laughs> um, I should say this at the beginning. I don't... My identity on Twitter is very, very different from my identity as a classroom professor. Mm -hmm. um, I'm much more opinionated on Twitter. Um, you know, I try to, as a historian, I try to present all sides, all views in my classroom. So, like, somebody who sees me on Twitter might say, you know, well, I don't agree with this guy. I never want to take a class with him. Or, oh, this guy's going to preach this certain <laughs> political position or whatever. You know, I want to go to Messiah and you know, <laughs> take a course with him. Um, so, so Twitter, to me, is, is a very different kind of uh, delivery system, if you want to call it that, than, mm. than the classroom is for me. I'm very traditional in, in the classroom. Um, I've thought a lot about this question. You know, what's the difference between being a historian, a social commentator, an educator? I think I'm always an educator. That's in my DNA. So, you know, a lot of my tweets that I send out um, are usually links to things that I want people to consider, mm -hmm. right? Um, here's an interesting way to think about a particular problem. And for me, I'm a historian, right? So a particular problem in the past. Right? Um, read this person, read this woman's piece, read this guy's piece. Um, so in that sense, I'm always kind of trying to uh, educate. Right? Mm -hmm. Most of my Twitter followers, um, I know there are academics who follow me on Twitter, but most of my Twitter followers are sort of Christians, pastors, um, graduate, a lot of graduate students, and so forth. So, uh, you know... I say it's the wild, wild west because if I commit sins on social media, uh, they happen on Twitter, right? I go too far or I, you know, I get into, uh, I say something, ah, I wish I wouldn't. I look at the next morning, so I wish I wouldn't have tweeted that. And so, but, oh, but really what I try to do is I try to engage current events with historical perspective. I mean, that's what, you know, I'm at my best when I'm doing that. I'm at my worst probably when I'm riffing on, you know, <laughs> some kind of political issue or, or something, you know. So, so it's... Uh, you know, it's a really, I don't know the answer, okay. how to separate those identities on Twitter. Right, well, right? well and, and similar, yeah. so I've also followed you on Facebook, and I've mm -hmm. noticed that your Facebook feed is a mix of posts about your latest episode of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, mm -hmm. or updates on program proposals for the Faith and History Conference, or even your youngest daughter's 17th birthday, yeah. your oldest daughter's academic and athletic endeavors at Calvin, all of these things. So how do you balance your personal and professional yeah, aspects yeah. of your identity on your Facebook account? Yeah, again, I'm glad that you're distinguishing between the different mediums because mm -hmm. I think about the different mediums differently. I have over uh, like 14,000 followers on Twitter. It's a very different kind wow. of world. Facebook, obviously, you have to accept people right into your community, right? Sure. You, have to, you have to accept a friend request. Um, I probably have about 100 friend requests just sitting there right now, and I'm not accepting them because I don't know. I mean, over the years, they build yeah. up, right? I don't know who these people are, mm -hmm. and when I look at their our, our common friends, I don't see a lot of common friends either. Uh. So I'm hesitant about sort of inviting them in to the conversation. Um, anyone who follows me on Facebook knows that uh, the, the engagement, the conversation, the discussion about a particular issue is the most rigorous and intense there. Mm. Uh, you, you have more than 280 characters. People develop their thoughts. We argue about things. We debate things. Um, and I want people there that I can trust 
to be sort of civil conversation partners. Not necessarily that I agree with them, but that they're going to, and you know, we get into some pretty intense arguments, um, but, but somebody, who, somebody who I can trust, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, so I, so I do. Uh, having said that, I haven't figured Twitter out yet, or, or Facebook out yet, how to balance that, you know, family stuff. Because right. on Facebook, I'm also, uh, I'm also, you know, want my mom to see that, you know, my daughter just graduated or, you know, that she had a good game the other night or whatever. Um, some people have suggested I should have, like, a professional and a private one. Oh. Um, I, I'm just not there yet. I'm still kind of thinking that all through. But I do think the people who follow my blog, um, you know, do uh, sort of appreciate, and then I invite into the Twitter circle. Um, and it's not hard to get into it. I mean, if I know you, I'll accept your friend request. It's not like I've created this little exclusive kind of group. Thank you for friending me. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but I think those people I can, you know, again, I can trust a little bit more and... And I, I feel more comfortable kind of opening my family life mm-hmm. to a limited extent sure. to them. Yeah. Well, and as you think about your strategy with social media, is there a time of day or a number of posts per day that right, inform right. your social media engagement and strategy? I mean, do you have a philosophy behind when you tweet or when you post on Facebook? And how do you decide when or when not yeah. to weigh in? Yeah. Well, first, let me dispel a myth uh, that I often hear sort of second, third hand, fourth hand from people. Um, I, I'm, I'm constantly, you know, I, I blog, I put, you know, on a big day, I'll have like maybe 10 posts mm. on my blog. I usually spend about two hours a night blogging. I rarely, wow. I rarely blog during the day. I rarely write a blog post. They're all scheduled. So, like, there's this misconception that I'm sitting there, you know, constantly at my computer all day. I write maybe five, four, five, six, seven posts, depending on how I feel. When I'm done, I don't feel like writing anymore. I stop. <laughs> and if you look at my blog, most of them are just links to mm-hmm. other things that I say, here, this is cool, check it out, you know, or whatever. Or maybe give a one or two sentence opinion about the piece, or here's mm-hmm. why it's important. Um, and then they just go off. So, like, if you went on my blog right now, you'd see, you know, there's posts up there right now. How did he do that? You know, does he have a computer? Um, so so the, uh, let me just dispel that myth. Having said that, I have seen my blog as part of my kind of vocational uh, sort of calling as a sort of historian who wants to engage the public. So, you know, I, I, I do want to spend, I do spend time on it every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sort of usually kind of later at night uh, preparing those, those posts for the next day. Um, I find that at 9 p.m. on weeknights is when... Um, I get the most hits for some reason, so, really? so I, all my posts go to Twitter at 9 o'clock. So if you're following me on Twitter at 9 wow. o'clock, you'll notice like all my posts are being, because the statistics show that's when most people, are, wow. most people are reading. So it took me a while to figure all of that out. Um, I, will, I will blog during the day if there's like, you know, my blog's about religion, politics, American history, so forth. So if there's something breaking, right, you know. You know, for me, something breaking would be, you know, like Donald Trump spoke at Liberty University, right? This intersection of politics mm-hmm. and, or maybe Jimmy Carter spoke at Liberty University, right? This intersection of politics and, and religion, mm. you know, I, I may want to respond in live time, right? So I, sure. I might carve out some time during the day. Um, but largely, largely, they're sort of all scheduled, and um, that sort of makes my life a little more sane. 
Oh, great, yeah. great. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I'm so curious, you know, if you had to post one final tweet, what would it be? Probably something, somebody please help me. <laughs> <laughs> Call 911. <laughs> I, I actually, I got to give my, my colleague David Pettigrew uh, oh. credit for that one. You know, I asked him, what should I say for this question? And, and he gave me that answer. But it's, but it's true, you know. I mean, call I for mean, help. There's, yeah, yeah, call for help. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, are there, are there times in your life that you intentionally unplug from all things technology? And if so, when, yeah, why? Yeah. Sure. Um, I rarely blog, like I said, I rarely blog during the day while I'm on campus and, and teaching, even when I'm at home, you know, mm -hmm. if I'm at home doing writing that day or, or in the mornings or something. Um, I rarely, if ever, use social media, produce things on social media from my phone. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so if I'm not at a computer or a laptop, I'm not, I'm not engaged. Uh, I know that that's kind of strange for a lot of social media sort of people. Like, you don't do anything on your phone. Part of the thing, my hands are too big. I can't, you know, <laughs> it's hard to, you know, I, I haven't figured out how to tweet like my daughters, you know, who can, it's like second nature. Um, I actually just only started bringing my phone to work uh, here on campus a year or two ago, because now Joy and I are down to one car. So we have to kind of, oh. uh, you know, you ready to go, you know, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So I can text her. Um, so, uh, Sometimes, too, I just get tired of the kind of fast-paced blogging. My, my philosophy of blogging comes from the conservative. Um, he no longer blogs, but he's a conservative, comment, moderate to conservative commentator, Andrew Sullivan, who had a blog called The Daily Dish. Mm. He was a full-time blogger. He would, blog, he would post every 15, 20 minutes. I obviously am nowhere wow. near that, but that was always my model. So sometimes you get a little burned out and you sort of take a break. Um, you know, I'll go on a blogging vacation for two weeks. But generally, I stay connected because, again, I feel, you know, I, I think, you know, well, I have enough followers and, and readers now that want to sort of hear, you know, want the information. They want, you know, they want to find out what's going on in the field of history. They want to take on something. Um, and I do think it's a sense of vocation to stay digitally connected. The best way is to stay digitally connected mm. to that kind of stuff. So, uh, so, yeah, I don't see it as a hobby. Sure, sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and switching gears a little bit, congratulations on the 10th anniversary of your book, The Way of Improvement Leads Home. Thank you. It's excellent. And your blog, and as well as the third year of your associated podcast. Mm -hmm. Now, can you walk us back in time and tell us what inspired you to launch The Way of Improvement Leads Home blog yeah. and then your podcast? Yeah. The Way of Improvement Leads Home blog was started... Um, Ten years ago, my editor at the University of Pennsylvania Press, who published my first book, said, you know, we we're talking about how to promote this thing. Because it, it is an academic book, but I found there's an interesting story embedded in there. There's a romance in there. There's a love, love story in the book about this guy, Philip Vickers-Vivian. And people seem to be connecting with this, with this story amidst all the academic jargon kind of in between. So he said, why don't, you, why don't you start a blog? So I did. And if you go back and look at the beginning of The Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, 10 years ago, you'll see a lot of the initial posts are like, and then Philip Vickers Fithian did this. <laughs> and this is why on page 29, I decided to argue this, right? <laughs> and in some ways, it's kind of boring, um, unless you were really into the book. But eventually, eventually, it began to expand, and more and more people started, started reading. I started getting much more involved in kind of religion and politics. Um, 
and, and bringing some kind of historical perspective to religion and politics, which I thought was a voice that wasn't out there mm -hmm. that much. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, again, it, it, I don't want to say this was fast growth, you know. Right now, on a good day, we can get, get 5,000 readers a day at the blog. Um, on a really good day, we've had as high as like 150,000 in a day if wow. it's a really hot topic. Mm -hmm. um, on a bad day, you know, usually on the weekends, we get a couple thousand, which I think is still pretty good. Um, so it's grown, and um, I think it's, it's filled a gap for a lot of people who want kind of historical takes on what's going on in contemporary culture. The podcast, I guess it was about three years ago, one of my former students, Drew Hermeling, Drew Durley Hermeling, um, we used to go get coffee at Little Amps in Harrisburg, mm -hmm. the, not the big one, the little one, um, little neighborhood one. But we used to meet regularly, and we kind of had this idea. What if, we, what if we started a podcast, right? What if we, we'll call it the Way of Improvement Leads Home Podcast. He, he was much, I needed someone who was digitally savvy. I'm really not. People say to me, you can, you can, uh, you know, you, you take up our, you know, digital stuff. I'm like, I'm not really that digital. I'm behind the curve. I know how to blog. Mm. Right? I mean, that's pretty <laughs> much it, right? So Drew and I worked together. We got it started. Um, history podcasts at the time were very, very popular. Uh, since, since we started, we've done four seasons now. We've interviewed everybody from museum directors, Pulitzer Prize winning historians. It's amazing. People just want to promote their ideas and their work. So, you know, it's amazing. We just make these cold, cold calls to people, emails, say, would you like to come on the podcast? Sure. You know, and, and we started um, in uh, the radio station. Uh, our, our producer, Josh Lowry, student producer, Josh Lowry, some of you know him, he got us over into the um, studio here in, uh, in, um, in Parmer, and we do it in there. And uh, we started a, a Patreon campaign. I mean, Drew gets, is way underpaid, but all the money that we raise, Patreon is a crowdfunding mm -hmm. thing, so all the money that we make a month from our patrons uh, goes directly to Drew. I make no money on it, and we pay our studio producer. The podcast started when two readers of our, uh, longtime readers of the blog, uh, wanted to make a financial donation mm -hmm. to help us start the podcast. And uh, so, so that seed money is now pretty much gone, and we're now just relying on patrons to, to do that. I am so glad to be here with these three fine colleagues of mine at Messiah to talk about uh, flourishing in a digital world. Let's just go um, from kind of my left to my right here. Uh, let's start with you, David. Now, David, you've been on the podcast before. We did an actual uh, much longer episode with David as a bonus episode for our patrons. So not everybody has heard this episode, but of course, if you want to become one of our patrons, you can, you can go there and, and get the full episode. But um, so you've been here before. Tell me a little bit about uh, you as a, your, your role as a digital historian and the way in which the Messiah College History Department has kind of embraced digital history. How does digital history shape your work, your teaching? Yeah, I, I think it's safe to say uh, that when you guys hired me 12 years ago, as your ancient historian, you were not thinking at all about digital history no, or, or my right. ability. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's, we're, we've entered this uh, environment, this world in which uh, historians just start using technology and start start to call themselves digital historians, but so much has changed in the last uh, 20 years in our, in our disciplines. Mm -hmm. um, you guys were talking about this earlier. 
I think I'm in the transition period between, you know, I'm in, in the just over 40 group yeah. here, and um, between you and between Drew, when I started graduate school at Ohio State, uh, in the Ohio State University in uh, 98, that's right, that's right. Um, Got a Buckeye in the crowd. We have some Buckeyes. Um, you know, I, I was still doing research the old-fashioned way. We'd go and pull Loeb classical, um, uh, uh, classical texts off the bookshelf in the big reading room, uh, try to find our uh, citations for an ancient right. uh, research topic uh, physically, and, um, and, then, and then record it on note cards. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the, the, my time at Ohio State in 2006, I was using databases. I was using geographic information systems for my uh, own research. I had a cell phone. Uh, so all of these things uh, yeah. changed. Even, even that, those, little, those little lobe classical texts, that had all been digitized. So now you could search any Greek and Latin text uh, just automatically. Um, even archaeology. So I'm an archaeologist, yeah. and even archaeology, which you think of, you know, the most common image is what? Indiana Jones, right? Right, right. So, so and you're if, teaching an FYS on it. I am. Indiana, Indiana Jones, Jones in the title. In Indiana the fall, Jones right? and yeah. me. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, if you get rid of the the guns and the whips and the uh, the Nazis, uh, you're still left with <laughs> you're still left with this like you know guy with the the you know person with the tiara hat. You're and you have the hat. I have the hat, I do, and I have the whip. I don't have the Nazis <laughs> or the <laughs> or the or the spiders or the or the snakes, but. Uh, you st- you're still left with this, this image of an archaeologist at a trench side um, ma- meticulously recording yeah, yeah. excavation, excavated yeah. material, stratigraphic context as, as right. it comes out of the ground. But, but actually, you're more likely, or you're as likely to see an archaeologist behind a computer screen these days yeah. studying artifact patterns, distribution patterns. Let me, um, let me yeah. interrupt for a second. Let me yeah. follow up on this. Um, because, you know, you are an accomplished uh, archaeologist, you're an accomplished uh, historian of the ancient world, you've published uh, several books, you're editing in the big Oxford handbook right now on early Christian archaeology. Yeah. Um, in what ways, and you started talking about this, but let me try to redirect you a little bit, in what ways does, um, you know, the digital world now shape the way you work? You know, oh, I think you were starting to, everything. but talk about this personally, like everything. in your own work in Cyprus. Oh, sure. Uh, in 2011, we were excavating a Hellenistic site. So third century BC, the, the age of Alexander the Great, Messiah College students are there, and information technology services gave us 10 iPads to take along. We worked with a, a colleague at Washington and Jefferson University to develop an app, a digital app, mm-hmm. where we recorded, instead of recording with physical notebooks. We recorded everything via an iPad app. At the end of the day, all of that data was uploaded to a server. Uh, and so Amazing. you had, you had uh, um, this, this, this ongoing process of, of backup. Uh, next week, I'll be in ancient Corinth in Greece, and we'll be using drone photography to capture low-altitude, um, really high-resolution aerial photographs of the landscape. Yeah. And we hope to to use that technology to see below the surface and to see things that we couldn't see otherwise. Yeah. Um, trench That's bottoms, right? Yeah, so there are yeah, lots and lots yeah. of examples of this, and we yeah. could also list them for, for other fields like uh, history as well. Now, you've also, you were joking about how, you know, you couldn't imagine yourself uh, um, being a sort of digital historian when, you know, when we hired you. Right. We also couldn't imagine a, a something called the Digital Harrisburg Project 12 right. years ago. And you have kind of had to become a kind of... Uh, um, 
20th century United States historian, too, yes. right, to think about the digital. What, first of all, some of us may not be familiar. What is the Digital Harrisburg Project? You direct this project. Um, you know, give us, just give us a kind of nutshell, uh, in a nutshell, kind of what, uh, what you're doing. And then I know Gene can talk a little bit more about this, too. Uh, yeah, so the Digital Harrisburg, we actually call it an initiative because right. yeah. uh, projects, are, projects kind of start and then they're over and they have a limited uh, span and projects are usually one thing. So the initiative uh, is a series of projects that is designed to tell the stories of Harrisburg with various kinds of digital technologies. Um, it began, we, we actually intentionally launched this in 2014. Mm -hmm. Uh, as part of a collaboration here on campus with uh, Jeff Erickson's GIS class, uh, with uh, Jim Legrand's public history class, and then off campus with Harrisburg University of Science and Technology. Um, and uh, we, we partnered to do some historical mapping of the city of Harrisburg 120 years ago. Um, Harrisburg, th those, those in the audience who don't know Harrisburg's history, has an interesting city, beautiful movement that transforms the city overnight. Um, uh, the, 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 the green spaces, the capital, state capitol building, the uh, buildings around the state capitol, the river walk, all of those are part of the mm -hmm. city beautiful movement. Major change, but it was also socially disruptive, uh, social disruptive movement. Um, it knocked out the old 8th Ward, the city's mm -hmm. most ethnically and racially diverse neighborhood in the 19-teens. And so we're trying to understand how this... How this um, uh, how this happened. And so what we did is we put the entire population of the city on the map. Uh, mm -hmm. We worked from, with uh, census tables uh, and our digital history students, you know, uh, I assigned them data entry in my digital history class. <laughs> and each of them had 2,000 records of the federal census. And it turns out students don't like data entry. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I, I learned it the hard way with a mutiny in the That's class. Right. That's right. But a pretty cool pro product at the end of the day. And we're doing lots of other things at this As point. As your chair, yeah. I've read those goldenrod sheets. <laughs> <laughs> they have improved over time. <laughs> um, let, let, this is a nice transition into sure. Gene. Gene, you, as many of you know, Gene directs our uh, Center for Public Humanities here. Um, and you run a, a program called Poetry in Place that's also connected with the Digital Harrisburg Project. So, so tell us a little bit, what is Poetry in Place, and then how is Poetry in Place connected to sort of the Digital Harrisburg work that um, David and his team, and I, I assume you're part of that team as well, are doing? Well, I will say, um, so actually 2014 was also the first year of the Student Fellows. Right. So David and I have worked together mm -hmm. the entire time connecting the work right. of the center to Digital Harrisburg. And in some ways, you're still operating as an archaeologist because you're peeling through the layers I of am. culture, right? It's Indiana so, Jones. Yeah, yeah. I, I always wanted to go with yeah. Indiana Jones somewhere. So that <laughs> this is almost as good as going to Greece. I don't know. So, so uh, poetry in place is, is one of the projects we we've actually the fellows have been involved with Digital Harrisburg in some way. Mm -hmm. David likes to say that I'm about getting the social history of Harrisburg, which I think that's true, and that's what I'm interested in. Um, but but um, we've been doing this since 2014, and I thought David was going a little too slow for me. Um, and um, I thought that he was going to... Why doesn't that surprise me? I know. <laughs> um, and he's very careful about that data entry, which is very good that he is, because you can rely on what you're finding. Um, but, and he started a little bit too far back in history for me as well. But after four years, <laughs> this year, I feel like was the first time we really 
found our stride in. Um, and, you know, it, it, it has been such careful, detailed work that the students have had to do. Um, so I really appreciate, you know, I emailed Rachel Carey, who was there four years ago, mm -hmm. to say, listen, we are so grateful yeah. for all <laughs> that data entry you did. Yeah. Um, and I think once students can see how people really can use it and it can make, uh, you know, it makes things accessible and it, it allows people to see things um, that they couldn't have seen before. David taught the Hoverter students this semester. Um, the Hoverter students is a, a class for non-traditional students. The youngest one is uh, 20, the oldest one 74. Um, and they, I love them, how they came alive when David would show them the maps and they could kind of find their bearings and and they, they kept on saying, we never knew this history. We never knew this and history. And this was a specific class on Harrisburg the history, history of Harrisburg. Yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah. And, and they actually have created some blog posts that, that mm -hmm. they can contribute to the digital Harrisburg. But Poetry in Place is another, um, it's, it's a, a um, collaboration with middle school, uh, well, it's all ages, um, high, high school and middle school students in Harrisburg. And it started in 2014 as well. Um, but the goal is to connect Harrisburg students to the rich cultural and social and historical history that is Harrisburg that often they are not connected to. And so this year has been the first year we've really found ways to connect to the Digital Harrisburg Project in really, I think, energizing and flourishing ways, if you will. But Poetry in Place, this year we wrote poetry um, about, um, it's called, our theme was Civil War to Civil Rights because of Martin Luther King's 50th anniversary of his uh, assassination. And we went to memorials in the city, but the most exciting poetry in place workshops we did was around the old Eighth Ward. Mm -hmm. And so we used the information that David created, not David, David's students. Yeah. Um, David, yeah, right, David really didn't do I much data, data entry at all. <laughs> so um, David's students, um, but we uh, we we used their maps and um, one one poetry in place workshop. We went to the Capitol um, complex and we, we took the map and that for the current complex and overlaid the 1910 map and we had. Uh, one of the fellows had little cards that she created out of the census data that everybody had an, uh, a card for every person, and we would read the people's names when we got to um, Cranberry Street, or when we get, mm -hmm. and, and sometimes we forgot people's streets and they got very upset. So these were displaced residents. Yeah, displaced residents. So, yeah. so it would be, our favorite was John Spotwood. Um, John Spotwood was a barber. Um, so... That's the name I remember most. But mm -hmm. anyway, so they, and they would read their names, and then they would find each other's neighbors. So we were in real life using that digital data. Um, and then we went back, and as we were writing the workshop, uh, writing the poetry, we had all the, the they spent so much time scanning pictures from the archi mm -hmm. archives, and we, we put them up on washer clotheslines all over the place so they could walk around and find their street and find the pictures on their street. So it was really, really yeah, rich. Yeah. And their poetry was so historical. Yeah, they, I mean, it wasn't even yeah, a history yeah. assignment for them, but it was very... And when you talk about archives, we've also developed a relationship with the right. Dauphin County Historical Society there in Harrisburg. So we've, we've built that relationship. Yeah. We get access to their archives. Tell me, Jean, um, 
you know, you are... Can I tell you one more thing about that archive sure. thing? Because this was most exciting. Yeah, yeah. The last poetry workshop was I Dream a World. We did, I, uh, we did Martin Luther King, and then and that was fabulous. But then I Dream a World. And they wrote poems about, um, for the time capsule that's in front of St. Stephen's Church. And it's going, their poems are going to be in the archives. Wow. So they handed yeah, their poems yeah. over to David Carmichael to yeah. put in the archives for that. You also teach writing. Right, so you've been involved in writing pedagogy over the years. Can you tell us about the ways in which you might we might think about writing instruction as it's related to all of these digital issues, the digital world? Well, obviously, the poetry in place they yeah. are writing, and my students actually in my ethnic lit class use the resources for those their work too. But um, I think. The three big things about writing in a digital wor world, I'm teaching writing for social change in the fall, and how can you teach writing for social change without thinking about the available means for you in a digital world? I mean, social change happens when people figure out how to use digital platforms effectively, so that has to be a big part of it. But also, I think just, you know, as a heuristic. Um, the digital world offers so many available means to us as writers. So it expands our imagination, first of all, as writers. It expands our ways of thinking about audiences and possible audience, which is a very important part of our, our writing pedagogy at Messiah, is writing for purpose and writing for audience. And they can write for real audience. Um, we have both the Digital Harrisburg and the Center for Public Humanities has a blog. Students write and rewrite and rewrite with audience in mind for those blogs. But also, you can write, you have, you can write multimodal essays. You don't have to have just written text. So they can think of composing in a more um, integrated way. And also, it, it does really create access, I think. Great, thank you, Jean. And Nathan's been quiet down there. Um, <laughs> you are a digital storyteller. Is that fair? Um, yeah. To some extent, right? Um, you use multimedia stories uh, to spur people to action, right? And, and in some ways, we heard a little bit about the kind of activism as well here from Jean. You've produced a, an award-winning film, uh, Beyond the Margins, which has been used for promotional material, which has been used uh, as promotional material by World Vision uh, and UNICEF. Um, I guess I have a, a sort of, you know, well, first of all, tell us a little bit about those films. Let's get that out there. Sure, sure. Yeah. So Beyond the Margins was a film that, so working with the collaboratory at Messiah College, so housed in the engineering program. Uh, the engineering program at Messiah does fantastic work all over the world. Um, we're engaging our students in actually like being in the field producing uh, materials that matter for people's lives. So in this case, some of the work they were doing was in Ghana, where they were working on water, sanitation, mm -hmm. hygiene issues. And they had already put in a lot of work there that um, had improved people's lives. But the next step in that was they looked at it and they said, what about people with disabilities? Can they access these resources as their design? So they went back and they were kind of looking at, how could we make this more inclusive? So then Rodney Green, who was the program manager at the time with the collaboratory, came to me and our department and said, hey, we'd like to make a film or a commercial, something along those lines to kind of document what's going on there. And so then we pulled in a student, Derek Ash, so he, um, he's graduated, but um, a former student. And we looked at the project and we said, okay, 
you're not really, when you're not being paid for commercial work, you have more flexibility. So you can kind of say, uh, I'm not going to do it the way that you would normally do it and the way you want it. What we're going to do is we're going to look at, well, what is this thing really about? So what's mm -hmm. the story behind it? Because I could go and we could just, Derek could go and he could just film and say, look at these Messiah College students putting in water. Isn't that great? Right. And it is great. Like that, I, I'm not disputing whether that's great or not. What I'm disputing is, well, who, who is this for? And what is the point of this? And how does this change actually people's, change their lives and their sense of identity, humanity? Mm -hmm. And if this is about creating access, then let's look at the lives of these people with disability who have been kind of on the margins of their society and give them, uh, help us to more broadly understand, whether it's in Ghana or here, that it's not just about, oh, we've made their lives better. It's about that when they're included in our society, yeah. they are part of us and we're more whole when we do that. So we told their story and we showed world, you saw at one point that World Vision was involved. But other than that, we didn't say this is a World Vision project. Right, and right. We just told these people's stories. And that had a lot of impact. So World Vision looked at that and they've been used, they continue to use it. Uh, UNICEF's been using it because it makes people aware of the lives, the stories, the impact. It's not saying, hey, we went in and we fixed this. It's, this is what this means for people. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, did you get to meet Meghan Markle when you were working for World Vision? <laughs> I know she's an ambassador. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, sometimes we have to throw little jokes in to keep our podcast <laughs> listeners. Um, that was a pretty bad one. Um, <laughs> I wasn't you, judging, but... You teach digital media. Mm -hmm. um, now, for someone who has really no knowledge of this field, what's the difference between digital media and non-digital media? Is there a Sure. Uh, isn't all media in this day and age digital? Is there such a thing as non-digital media anymore? You right. Know, when tackle Drew, that one. When Drew you. says, oh, it's just the world, right? Yeah, um, right. Well, y yes and no. Uh, so, I mean, we can begin to kind of look at it and say, well, a lot of digital media is just a translation of this analog form. So it's digital photography. It's um, digital graphic design. Like, mm -hmm. but, but for me, it's like, okay, well, I'm a filmmaker. Yeah. But, and so a lot of the times I'm not going to distinguish there between which tool I use. Yes, the tool shapes how I produce it and it kind of changes my way of thinking about it and what I can collect and capture. It, it creates, it changes budgets, it changes all kinds of things related to approaches. So documentary filmmakers are always kind of pushing technology because it creates access, it creates new ways of telling these stories. But, so on the one hand, you have this sense where it's just like this kind of traditional Western Gnostic breakdown of like, well, is that really different? It's yeah. like, oh, well, body and spirit and <laughs> like, we just like to separate things. But there is a sense where digital media is really different. So I would say, I, I mean, Marshall McLuhan's kind of important, being really prophetic and kind of looking at this and saying, uh, well, electric media is different than the mechanical media because as light it travels at the speed of light, mm -hmm. and it can be constant. And it's kind of changing the speed and fragmenting the way that we exist in society. So on one level, these are all just extensions of our senses. Mm -hmm. um, but digital media, because it's so based in computation, you have someone like Lev Manovich who would say, okay, yeah, it's not just a translation, but these computers make a huge difference in that they can kind of, be, they become interactive. 
So thinking about interactivity in how we create those experiences. So I can make a film with digital materials and it could just be a film and there's nothing that really changes. Or I can create an experience for someone that says, you need to come in, this, you're going to interact with this piece, it's going, I'm going to create new spaces for this piece. The computer might even change the experience. And that happens on like micro levels and then it happens on more ways I can control that and kind of engage mm -hmm. with it mm -hmm. differently. So database, even. Yeah. So documentary filmmakers, I mean, the access of what we have and yeah. what we can distribute. Yeah. So digital media is not an, necessarily an oxymoron, or, or it's not necessarily redundant. It, it's, it's not... Like we, we historians like to say, like, there's no such thing as revisionist history because all history is revisionist, right? It's redundant to say revisionist history. Digital media is... I think it depends on your yeah. approach because a screen is different. Because yeah, a screen yeah. changes over time. And it like sometimes we can control it, and sometimes it will yeah. move at the pace that somebody's sure. designed it to move at. What, um, as you think about the future, Nathan, what, are, what would be some important things uh, that our audience, both our live audience, they're still here, and, um, and our podcasting audience, uh, what are some important things Ed, that, that can help us uh, for all of our students to, to sort of thrive in a digital age. Any quick kind of, <laughs> yeah. quick kind of thoughts on that, yeah. right? Um, okay, so maybe I'll try three quick ones. Okay, so I think... Three bullet points, yeah. Yeah, so we have to teach our students practical things. Practical, like, this is the tool, this is how you use it. And we sometimes, I mean, I would like to blow past that at times, but mm -hmm. we can't because, I mean, it's really important just to understand what the tools are and how to use them in order to do your job. Um, so you're a Springsteen fan. Um, Bruce Springsteen talks about like, what is his work as a musician? And he would say, I'm like a plumber. Like, I'm just trying to fix the world in small ways every day. Yeah. And so, what our work, so I have to teach people how to use that wrench. Mm -hmm. If otherwise, this wasn't very helpful. And I have to show them how to approach these different problems of why you'd use this wrench versus that wrench and why right, you, right. just to, in that basic way. But then I would say, well, what do I actually do as an educator at a liberal arts college? I teach people to care. Like, that is my job. It's to teach people to pay attention to the world and to care about the things that God cares about, to love your neighbor mm -hmm. as yourself. So if I do that, then if I do those two things, then I've won. Yeah. Um, and then I would say kind of, well, you know, what's the last piece to the equation? Are you willing to change? Because so much we think about, oh, I'm going to change my students. I'll have four years with them, and I will change them. And course, they will right? be great mirror images of me. It will be amazing. <laughs> Just like we make God in our image, I will make them in my image, and won't the world be great? Uh, or am I willing to change? Like, we think we have all the answers, and will I change with them? Will they change me? Will I, every time I make a film, the people I make films with, they change me. Mm -hmm. And they should. And if I'm not doing that, and if I'm not on that course, then I think I've lost the plot. Yeah. Yeah. Can, I, can I interrupt yeah, jump right in. here? Um, one thing I appreciate about both these guys is um, <laughs> they, they are willing and flexible, and I have thrown huge wrenches in their classes before mm -hmm. um, because I said I had an idea, and they, were, they, they ran with it. And, mm -hmm. and they were so gracious, um, it, and they still speak to me. Um, <laughs> But I do, I do think this, uh, I think what is most exciting about, I think, the work that we do, and, and we're all on the Digital Humanities Committee together, is 
this fight for cross-disciplinary work together. And mm -hmm. so um, I do think if you, if you are holding on pretty tight to the class that you developed 10 years ago, and you're not really willing to rework that a little yeah, bit, because it, yeah. it does, and you're not willing to get a few bad evaluations um, along the way. Um, it, I mean, it is risky, right? Wouldn't you say? So yeah, I, yeah. I, I, But I've been yeah. so appreciative of both of these guys in terms yeah. of, um, you know, they've been willing to say, hey, that, that is a project yeah. that would. The other, the other thing I picked up in this conversation, um, it strikes me that you're all doing kind of very kind of face-to-face, -face, you're integrating kind of very face-to-face -face kind of community kind of projects with the digital, right? You know, you're not in, off in some kind of, uh, you know, digital world that's disconnected. Um, well, it's more like, is, is there, yeah. Like, yeah, well, the digital world is disconnected, like it's disincarnate. Right, right. But actually, well, on one sense it is, but actually it acts, it asks us to be more incarnational. It asks us to be in the world and engage. Like it's not, uh, sure, I can reach out to a whole bunch of people, but I would say digital tools actually let me access my community. They yeah, let me yeah. be in my community. And again, not just so I can like do my research, and, but actually so I can serve and be served by the people in my community. Yeah. How else would you respond to sort of a critic who would say, um, let me give you a quick example. I've been involved in this little, little website uh, tussle uh, because um, I sometimes will tweet about one of my favorite novelists, Wendell Berry, who's very place-centered, and, and the hardcore Berry disciples are saying, it's just so strange to tweet about Wendell Berry. Like, you're not, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're, you've sold your soul kind of thing. How do you, how do you respond to those kinds of critics um, who would say, you know, the digital kind of, you know, I was joking about never having to teach an online course. I hope I don't have to, right? How do you respond to that kind of criticism of the digital? I mean, you've all thought about this a lot more than I have. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think you respond by saying you, you have the right, we should be critical, yeah. right? We should be critical of, of uh, the digital world that we live in. We should ask the kinds of questions that, you know, some of the questions that Janelle was asking uh, earlier. Um, and circumspect, uh, one of the things that I in, haven't started encouraging my students to think about within the digital history class is digital minimalism, mm -hmm. right? So you... Define that, yeah. So it's you, uh, basically choosing the things that actually give your life value, mm -hmm. right? Minimalism. So embracing less so that you can have more. And so what are the minimum number of digital tools that you can use which are going to open up, um, which are going to give you the most value? So reducing the noise, intentionally reducing the noise, um, going with less, reducing the number of tools, and, and really digging in uh, to uh, things that, that, that you couldn't do otherwise, you know, that, that make it possible to do a new kind of research or to teach in a different way that change um, mm -hmm. the way students think about the questions, but not doing everything. Um, so I, so I, I, think the, I think the critiques have got to be there, right? I think that's an yeah. important part of this conversation. Yeah. There's things you have to say no to, and Sabbath is really important in that concept. And I mean, like, if I want to see better, I close my eyes more. Mm -hmm. If I want to hear better, I turn down the noise in my life. So if you want to be able to do the work we do, you can't just be on 
all the time. That's not yeah. how God designed us to be. Yeah. I do. I mean, I I turned to David sometime during the semester, the semester, and I said, "This is our big so what, is that it it has to be very recursive, digital, real, back and forth." I think the students that are doing data entry, they have to connect it to Harrisburg, the real world. Mm -hmm. They have to mm -hmm. be in there, and and, and I, I I think it raises their care factor when they go back. Don't you? Th I uh -huh. think it really does in terms Absolutely. of, and and when they begin to have real people really touching their work as well. Yeah. But, um, but also the you know we really got to march around the Capitol complex, but the digital made it possible for us to imagine what it was like in ways that those students yeah. never would have had, and it also pushed them into digital research, and and allowed them to see these different opportunities sure. to find sure. information, so. Now, I'm guessing a lot of the audience uh, here, our, our live audience here at the Messiah faculty, community of educators, and our podcast listening audience, you know, I'll give you each a minute. You have each one minute, I'm gonna cut you off after a minute. <laughs> Cynthia's timing down here. Um, maybe, everyone's on their own kind of, you know, on their own kind of phase of their digital journey, right, <laughs> so to speak. Let's just say someone wants to kind of maybe stick a toe in the water or a foot in the water or dive in, right? Give, give us one kind of practical way of kind of getting engaged with the digital world uh, as academics, as people in, who want to be engaged with the community. Just give us one little, I know this was on, wasn't on our script, right? But one little tip, right? You know, you have a minute to tell me a, a tip or tell us a tip. Go. Anybody, we don't have to go in order. Well, well, I stumped them, I think. No, 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 no. I, uh, I, I pitched this to the School of Humanities. I said, if you had to do one, one little digital assignment for your class, and you're interested in writing, and you're interested in students doing some critical thinking, have them start a WordPress site. Have them start a, a little website. What is a WordPress site? Uh, so WordPress is a, a, a platform for building blogs and websites. They're very easy to set up. Uh, it's not just a blog. It's a dynamic website. Looking at Cynthia. You, all right. You get to see the. Oh, you have 27. 30 I, seconds. I have 30 seconds. Yeah. Uh, you, um, you can see the HTML. You can see the code, and you can you you can learn to write for a public audience. And doing that is a I think a good experience because it changes the way that you think about audience. It. Um, changes the style of the writing. It's a different kind of writing. Yeah. So that's mine. If we had more time, I'd love to talk about how to use WordPress blogs and yeah, so forth yeah. in classes and so forth, but that may be for another conversation. Who wants, who's up next? Yeah, okay. Um, I think that one of the things with digital media uh, is that it allows us to ex engage all of our senses, right? So it, in that sense, it's more fully human, or it's getting, helping mm -hmm. us to, like rather than a book is only, it's helping me to think really rationally and engage with my eyes. So multimedia allows us to have all these experiences so it can be emotion and idea at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, and again, time and space and composites. So maybe some, something you do with your students can try to engage all of those, so think more creatively about a paper and we kind of go to the traditional, well, it's just a blog now, it's just this. And that's just, again, like a digitizing sometimes mm -hmm. of, of the paper. Like, it does it, it's no different. But maybe there's a way for it to integrate these senses. Like, here are the sounds from the place, and this plays at the same time as you read the words of this person. And here now you can look at their journal, 
journal article. So if you design that multimedia experience, that might take me more into what it's like to be this person. Great. Jean? Well, I will say, I, I did a um, website for um, Central Pennsylvania American, I mean, Central Pennsylvania Literary History a few years ago in a class, and you cannot do a lot of content and the digital, I mean, the, the it, it takes up time, mm -hmm. so you really have to figure out how to frame it. And it has to be, you have to really think through assessment because students are so anxious. So figuring out how to create assessment that brings the anxiety down and allows them to take risks, I think is an important part of it as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming to Educators Day today and enlightening us and for being guests on our first live episode uh, of the podcast. Let's again, live studio audience, let's give them a big hand. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. So I'd, say, I'd say that was a success. What do you think, Drew? Well, I was just did back we survive our first live, uh, our live first live episode. I think we did. I was just backstage uh, retweeting community of educator Devin Manzillo Thomas about about the podcast <laughs> okay. episode. So well, was, give me a quick takeaway. <laughs> oh, well, I, you know, uh, I I thought that I what I really I like. I didn't ask him. Sorry, to do this, so yeah, he, on the spot. <laughs> so what I really think um, is valuable from this particular conversation is is the ways in which digital media brings us together into one conversation while at the same time pulling at different strands that are, that are unique to our, our particular disciplines, right? Yeah. So, it, more so we saw here three educators from three different departments really having one conversation. And I right. think that, that right. is, in many ways, that's the thing that gets me most excited as someone in grad school who's looking into the future of my own um, sure. career sure. as an educator. Yeah, and, and you know, as somebody who knows a little bit about the digital world, but not as much as these panelists over here, you know, there's always things to learn. Um, you know, I'm thankful for these colleagues and all the colleagues who are engaged in these digital things. I, I learned so much from them. I, d I did notice you asked uh, Dr. Pettigrew, uh, what's a WordPress site? You know your website is a WordPress site, I do right? know that. Okay. I do know. As the I, person who set I it up for you, that I want you to know that. I switched from blogger to WordPress <laughs> okay. when you came on I'm board. the one who told um, you to do that. All right. That is, that's why I did it. Yeah, I did know how to ask that question. <laughs> Um, so I get, again, Drew, this has been, a, again, a great episode. I guess that's a wrap. Yeah, I think it's going to be a real treat for our listeners. This is a bonus summer episode. But I'm, I'm really thankful that we got to have all of Let's our Let's hear the live studio audience Thank one you. more time. <laughs> we, um, we, are going to, we are going to do our sort of digital, you are going to do your sort of digital magic, editing magic on this episode. And when do you think it'll drop? I know I'm putting you on the spot again. I can get this done in two weeks. Okay, so look for this episode in sometime in June, maybe? Yeah, early June? Early June. Good. So thank you again for, um, for, for listening. Uh, and as always, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue this conversation on Facebook and Twitter. 
follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. Gotta turn the page here. This bonus episode was brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Additionally, this episode received extra generous support from the Office of the Provost at Messiah College. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. This podcast was recorded in front of a live studio audience at the High Center of Messiah College. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guests, David Pettigrew, Gene Corey, and Nathan Skolstad, and to our guest artistic producer, Cynthia Wells. Our guest interviewer was Ashley Schaefer. Our sound engineers today are Jonathan Burt and Derek Malden. I've been your producer, Drew Durley Hermling, and your host has been, as always, John Fia. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.